Good morning, Exchange. I hope you are well this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3. We're finishing up our series on the seven churches of Revelation today. Uh, and then actually we're going to spend five weeks in Psalms. We do this every summer called the Summer of Psalms. Uh, and I'm excited because uh, typically it affords me a chance to uh, sit and listen to uh, take in, submit to the word uh, from some guys who are going to preach to us. So I'm, I'm really excited about that coming up in July. Some of our guys uh, get a chance to, to teach us, to teach me, and uh, looking forward to that. And then we're diving into a series called The Rising Church, talking about uh, what can we expect from the church uh, and what should the church expect from us. And so got a lot of great things coming. I hope you'll stick around with us. Uh, while we're headed there, I want you to, if you haven't downloaded uh, the Church Center app, this is what it looks like if you go to uh, your app store, whichever one you use. If you haven't downloaded this yet, it's really, really helpful. Uh, so what you would do is basically you download the Church Center app, uh, and then once you get in there, you, you tell it, you go to Exchange Church, and a lot of the different things that we do, like every all of our calendar registrations uh, is on this app, and so it's really helpful. Uh, even sermon notes in a second. So when we go uh, into the passage, you can click on sermon notes and all the passages that we use uh, on a Sunday are there listed for you in order. You can take notes on there that stays all week long. And so there's a, a lot of helpful things, one of which uh, is something that I would love for you to do even now. Uh, if you have the Church Center app already, there's a button at the bottom that says registrations. And one of those registrations is a spot where we need help on Tuesday, July 4th, here in Rollsville. And so we set up a booth. Uh, this year we have uh, a photo booth where uh, families will be able to come, take some pictures, uh, lots of great props and that type of thing. Uh, then we're doing like these watercolor postcards where kids will be able to paint uh, watercolors. We'll be able to send a message, uh, write a little note to them and send it back to them uh, next week. And so we need six volunteers per hour. We've got four hours and we've got four flocks. So if, if you're in our small group system, you know uh, that each small group is underneath of a flock leader and each flock group has signed up for one hour. If you don't know yours, ask your small group leader uh, and they'll be able to tell you. We're pretty close to, to filling all those spots, uh, but we need some help, especially in the early hour. So it's just an hour engaging people, uh, hanging out, helping kids uh, do watercolor. Uh, the, the photo booth is a self uh, kind of photo through their iPhone. So you might grab somebody's phone for them and, and hit that button. Uh, and then if you're like me, your wife will look at it and say, can somebody else take this picture, please? You know? And so uh, that's what we need help doing. And so I, I hope you'll do that. It's a great way to connect with people, not just in Rollsville, but here um, also at Exchange. And so Let's dive into the passage this morning. It's the last uh, letter of the last church that Jesus speaks to the churches of Asia. And it comes uh, from Revelation chapter 3, uh, and it starts in verse 14. So I'm going to read that, and then we're going to dive in. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
Because you say, I'm rich and I've become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich with white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And the eye soft to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him, and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I have also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Have you ever uh, ignored a warning? Maybe for some of us in the room, uh, you, you see a caution light. Uh, maybe you're the type of person uh, where when you're 100 yards from the stoplight and it turns yellow, there's two types of people, right? You brake or accelerate, right? Which one are you? You know, and you know your spouse's answer too, right? Uh, sometimes we just blow past the warnings. Uh, several years ago, back, uh, I took a group of students to China, and at the Great Wall, there's this slide. Really, it's, it looks like what you would see um, on the Olympics, almost like a bobsled track. It's made of metal, and it's about a half uh, sphere. And they put you on these little carts that have about two inch wheels uh, and you're sitting really close to the ground and you have one handle uh, that's attached to uh, an old uh, chalkboard eraser, basically. Uh, and that handle is your brakes. That's what you have. It's, it's a single handle that when you pull up, it presses down on this chalkboard eraser and it's supposedly going to slow you down. And that's not a problem as long as you don't go through this like couple mile course at breakneck world record speeds, which I did, right? And so at the top of this, uh, you know, course, uh, I, like a very good and responsible youth leader, I'm not taking your children to Costa Rica next week, by the way. Um, There's a few guys, I said, hey guys, let's do this. Nobody hit the brakes all the way down. No brakes, just gas, Right? And so, of course, all the guys are just, just, I mean, loving this idea. They go, they go, they go. I'm the last one to go. And I'm probably the heaviest, which means I'm going to get the most momentum and speed. And so I'm going through this course. And throughout the course, they have, uh, I don't know, it's probably five different guys with walkie-talkies at various turns uh, who are standing beside the course. And they've got a snack, and they're talking on their walkie-talkies. And they'll, they'll just kind of like look at you and give you the, the, you know, the, hey, you need to slow it down a little bit, slow it down a little bit, you know, and I'm going so fast. And to just to be honest, I just didn't care, right? Like I thought I can handle this. I've got this. And so they're going around and I pass four of these guys at different various points and they give me the, and every time I go past one, their warning gets a little bit stronger, right? It's like the first time it's like, okay, you need to slow down. Second one's like, pumping that pretty hard, right? And by the time I get to the, the fifth guy, which I did not know at the time was the last guy, he drops his walkie-talkie on the ground 
and his eyes get very large and he goes two hands and he's doing this, right? And I can tell by the expression on his face that there's danger coming around the corner. So I broke my rule and decided that I was gonna employ the 1980s chalkboard eraser, which did absolutely nothing. And so I come around the corner and I see my entire group of students, they're parked. They're, they're, you know, bumper to bumper on their little cars parked and I'm coming in hot, right? There's no stopping me. There's no stopping this cart. I just braced for impact. I knew it was coming. They did not, right? I mean, the car smashes in to them, and it's a, just a good, 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 good. I mean, people are flying everywhere. I ended up breaking a couple ribs, all of the things, right? It was fantastic. It's what you want to do when you take children overseas. This is, this, this is exactly how you want to behave as a leader, right? I don't know if you've ever been there in life where you just ignored the warnings and you suffered the consequences. I have. And it feels like today in this passage, Jesus has dropped everything and he's holding both hands up and he's saying, warning, there's danger ahead. If you keep on this same course, you will destroy yourself and destroy others. And so I think we should listen to Christ as he's pushing on us with this letter, two hands in the air, slow down, slow down, slow down. Listen, be careful. This is dangerous. And I'm afraid that there's more than ribs that are at stake. Notice how he introduces himself. I think it's very important as he does in each letter. He says this in verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true, the witness, the origin of the creation of God says this. Just like all the other letters, Jesus introduces himself in a way that would bring justice and power, truth, final authority to his message that he's pushing on the churches. And like a prize fighter who stands in the corner while his stats are read, Jesus stands ready. And the introduction is the one who's faithful and true, the one who was present at the dawn of creation. And I love this word. It's very unusual. He says, in the amen. It's interesting. If anyone else would introduce themselves in this way, we would think, and rightfully so, they're arrogant, prideful, incorrect even. But Jesus has no other option than to introduce himself this way because he is this way. And because he's God, he cannot deny himself. He cannot even be humble about who he is. He has to instead uh, that he is faithful and true. He's the final authority of all of those things. And here in his final letter, he introduces himself in this trifecta of authority. First, he says, he is the amen. It's the first Christ title involves this very common Hebrew word uh, used in a very rare way. Amen. And in the New Testament, it's used about 130 times. And, and this is the only instance that it's used in this way as a name. John uses it as a response to the end of the doxology when he's affirming the truth that's already been professed. 
Jesus sometimes uh, prefaced his statements in Mar Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with this word. You've probably read it. Sometimes it's translated as verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you. This is how it's normally used. It's to signal the importance of truth that was about to convey or was conveyed. Um, and here it functions as a name, the only time in the New Testament. In this Christ title, the Sermon of Laodicea, there's only one other place in Scripture where amen is used in the same way. It comes from Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16. And it says, because of the one who is blessed on the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, the God of the amen, the God of the amen, the God of when he says it will be, it will be. And the one who swears by an oath on the earth will swear by the God of, again, of amen, the truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and because they're hidden from my sight. He says he's the God of truth. Whatever he says, he says, it will happen. That's who he is. And then he introduces himself in this way, the faithful and true witness. This is the second time that we've seen Christ use this term about himself. The first time it was used in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, when it's kind of this introduction. But it's not the last time. It's used in Revelation chapter 19, uh, verse 11, towards the end of all things. And it says this, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Notice what he does. He wages war on those who oppose him. So the faithful and true one, the one who finishes all things, the one who's the final authority on all things, he wages war on those who are opposed to him. But then there's this last depiction, the origin of creation, the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. He stands out of time, out of any boundary that this world has. He's not in it. He's limitless. He's without fail, and he knows all things. And I think in a way, he's reminding the church of Laodicea, that he's been there. He's seen it. He's not ignorant. He's not naive. He's the ultimate authority who knows all things and will judge all things. And so for our question for the church today is this, when, when Christ asserts himself in this way, and we know this to be true, do we believe who he says he is enough to obey what he says? Do we believe who he says he is so that we obey what he says we should do. Here's the point that I want to get across to us. When we acknowledge Christ for who he is and ourselves for who we are not, obedience is the only option. It's the only option. I think Jesus pushed us to understand this truth when his disciples asked us, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? Do you remember many of the words that Jesus spoke in his prayer, our Father? And then he gives a, a location and, and a position, who is in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. And in a way, when we state this, we're also stating where we're not. Our Father who is in heaven and sits on the throne. We who are here stand before you. Hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is. So Jesus is setting us up for this truth to acknowledge who the Father is, who God is. And when we acknowledge who he is and who we are not, we are not God, then obedience is the only option. We have to understand that who he is demands our obedience. And so I think when that means for us that when Christ gives us a signal of warning, 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 I think only the fool would say, no, I, I know better. I know better. And so even in the title here, before Jesus gives his instructions, he's, he's reminding us of why we should care. Why should we should care at all about what he says next and the authority that he has? And here's what he says. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. And I wish that you were cold or hot because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold. I will vomit you out of my mouth. In, previous, uh, in the previous six letters, uh, there's this transition from the opening of the title uh, that's signaled by these words, I know. And so most of these, in fact, all of the other six start with some type of uh, commendation where Christ praises the church for what they're doing. And so I imagine if you have ever looked at this map of the seven churches, the reason why Laodicea is the last is not because it's the most maybe violent in content, but because it's the last on the journey. Like the mail system would go around in, in kind of a, uh, an arc. And so this would be the last stop. So for someone delivering the letters, if you can imagine, they may have read, probably, they may have read all of the letters in order, Laodicea. So they read six previous letters going to six different churches, and they hear these words, I know, I know your deeds, I know you've been faithful, I know you've stood strong, right? And so for them, I can imagine, especially when you see their position later on, uh, they're sitting in their seats saying, I can't wait to hear what Christ has to say about us. This is going to be fantastic. And he moves straight into a warning. Why do you think that is? It's because it's so significant and important and dangerous. He's going to make a point. And often like Jesus does in, in his sermons and his teachings and his parables, he uses these agricultural terms that the people that he was speaking to would understand really, really well. In this instance, the people of Laodicea would probably understand the, the illustrations of hot and cold very well. Uh, Heropolis was six miles from Laodicea, and it was known for its hot springs. The waters uh, then and even still today are medicinal. Uh, they've got tons of minerals, healing properties, all of these things. And they're about 95 degrees. In contrast, uh, the waters nearby in Colossae were cold and pure. Laodicea had neither, and even in the summer months, their water cisterns would dry up. And there was about a six-mile cauldron that they would basically move their water through uh, from Colossae, their drinking water. Uh, it was known for um, bacteria because it would sit and it would move so slowly. It would develop a lot of theologians, archaeological studies say that it was known for this calcium carbonate content, which resulted in the waters being impure and timic, and it would cause vomiting. When they would drink this water without purifying it, 
it would literally cause them to vomit. And so they know this very, very well. And he says, you're not here, you're not there. You're literally here in the middle and it makes you sick. They're lukewarm. What does that mean? I think in the passage to follow, here's what it means. They weren't philosophical atheists where they believed that God did not exist. They weren't cold. They, they weren't making these statements brashly against God saying, you aren't there, you don't exist, I don't care what you say. Here's what I believe. They were functional atheists and lived like they didn't need him to exist. They weren't philosophical atheists with their mind or even with their mouth and says, I don't believe that you're real. They were functional atheists and they lived like they didn't need him. Possibly like some of us in the room. I think if they were cold, God can work with that. He can take someone to the end of themselves. He can send his church in to have a reason for the hope of the gospel that lies within them. But I think Christ pushes them to understand that the most dangerous place for humanity to be is in a place where we've convinced ourselves that we have enough of God. And of course, it would be better for us to be in the place that he wants us in a red, hot relationship with him, totally dependent, reliant on him, uh, reliant for his righteousness and freedom of sin. But he would rather us be honest with our condition and suffer the consequence of our self-deception. I think this is important. Christ would rather us be honest with our condition than suffer the consequence of our self-deception. It's so much so that Jesus has literally dropped everything and said, stop, listen. I think like a doctor, Jesus identifies the symptoms first. He comes in and he says, you're, lu you're lukewarm. You're numb to the position before God and you're okay with it. But Jesus then identifies the sickness, the cause of the weakness, the real disease that's causing the withering of their heart to fade away. And then he says this, because, he says, you're lukewarm, because you say, I'm rich and have become wealthy. You have no need of anything. And you do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You're self-deceived. I think they're operating out of a place towards a goal of self-dependence and they've abandoned gratitude like what Ed led us in this morning and thanksgiving. Everything that they have, they believe, is from themselves. Their hard work, their ingenuity, their goodness, their, their righteousness. I, I would push on as this, that we will always have a weak or anemic faith when we strive to satisfy the idols of comfort and control. That's the type of faith that we can guarantee we will have when we strive to feed our idols. Every one of us in this room has the idols of comfort and control. They just play themselves out in different ways. But when we, our striving is to feed those idols, we will always always have a weak and anemic faith. Listen what 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 says. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. 
For we have brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. What he's saying here, Paul, to Timothy, he's saying when we chase after those things hard and fast, when our goal in life is to feed our idols of comfort and control, it's going to lead to destruction. He says we're deceived by this. It doesn't mean that having places of comfort or control are a bad thing. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't live our lives in a way that we get to experience the, the, the fruits of our labor. I'm not advocating, I don't believe Scripture's advocating for us to, to sell ourselves into poverty so that we're then dependent on everything. But I think there is a reason why Scripture pushes us towards generous giving most often. Why? Because it knows that the, that the antithesis of that is hoarding. And so when we learn to give it away, when we learn to work in a way that we look outward towards others and say, what, what are the needs in the room? How can I help someone else out? That cures our heart. It puts a stopgap in the way of our wanting comfort and control and trying to gather it as quickly and as ferociously as we can. 1863. President Lincoln designated April 30th, listen to this, I don't know if you know this, as a national day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. That'd be awesome, huh? Let me read a portion of this proclamation that he says. It is the duty of nations as well as men who we owe their dependency on the overruling power of God to confess their sins, their transgressions, and humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. And recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by history of those nations who are blessed, whose God is the Lord. The awful calamity of this civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us by our presuppositional sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people, intoxicated with the unbroken success we have become too self-sufficient and feel the necessity of redeeming and persevering grace, too proud to pray to the God who made us. We've grown in numbers, wealth, and power, and a nation has never grown like this, but we have forgotten God. It's what Jesus warns us about in his parable of the seeds and the sower. In Mark chapter 14, this is a, it's a similar message that Jesus preached. And it's, I think at this moment, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus has his hand up like this. Hey, guys, watch out. Watch out. Watch out. He says this, when the disciples asked to understand. He says, why don't you understand this? How will you understand the parables? The sower sows the word. And the ones who are, the, uh, who are beside the road where the word is sown, they hear and immediately Satan comes and takes away the word that's been sowed to them. In a similar way, these are the ones with the seed in the rocky places who they hear the word and immediately receive it with joy. And yet they have no firm root in themselves, but they're only temporary then. 
When afflicted or persecuted, persecution occurs because of the word, they immediately fall away. Here's, here's the message to Laodicea. And others are seed among, seed among thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things enter and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones with the seed on good soil. They hear the word, they accept it, they bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 times as much. I think one of the great problems with the people of Laodicea, it, it's not just their sin. I think the big problem is this, that they're self-deceived in their sin. That's why they were lukewarm. Jesus says, you don't know that you're wretched. You're miserable, poor, blind, naked. You're self-deceived. It's, I would say this is a very, very difficult place to come out of. It's a place where we feel like and we've convinced ourselves that everything's good. We're okay. Not just okay, we're good. I think this is the significantly different than the deceived or being cold towards God. In that case, I think if we're put in the right environment, we're tempted, even prone to fake it. There's some of us in the room that we're cold towards the things of God and we know it. I think there's some here today that I, I could talk about what it means to be a, a, a passionate follower of Christ and one who's cold towards the things of God. But I think I don't even really need to do that. I think the Spirit does that for us. And those of us who are not self-deceived in the room immediately know it. And we immediately feel that conviction. We immediately know I'm not far, I'm, I'm not close to God right now. And so I would say this for you, if that's you today, which I've been there. I would venture to say most people in this room, if not everyone in this room has been there, I would say lean into that. Lean into the conviction that maybe the Spirit has on your heart right now in this moment. Lean in. We've said this before, even take a minute, pause and say, God, thank you for, for continuing to speak to me. If all I heard today was a whisper of your spirit of conviction in my heart that says and reminds me of the truth that I already know that I'm far from you, thank you that you've not walked away from me. Lean in. Scripture says several times, it, if you can still hear his voice today, Lean in. You know, the enemy will try to tempt you to give in rather, rather than to lean into the conviction that Christ is gifting you with at the moment. The enemy will tempt you to shame. Man, I, I've been a Christian for years. I, I should have this together. I should have beat this sin already. I, I, should I should know how to do quiet time. The enemy, I believe right now, in this room is working. And he's tempting you to shame and guilt and despair. Let me tell you this, that does not come from Jesus. 
It doesn't come from Jesus. There's a moment where the Holy Spirit confirms what you already know. You're far from me. Come back. You're far from me. Come back. And in that same moment, the enemy is working. Shut him out even now. And lean into the Spirit of God. The problem is, is not with, I don't think, those who know that. I think the bigger problem and what Christ is most concerned about is for the people in Laodicea and those of us in the room that are what he says is self-deceived. We've convinced ourselves that we are good. We, we actually believe it. We defend it. Somebody points it out to you. We get mad because we're just misunderstood. They don't actually, they don't, they don't know our spiritual walk. So how do you know? I think there's two, there's two ways that we can put ourselves to the test. There's two ways that we can put ourselves to the test, I think. I don't think I, don't think I have these on the screen. The first is this. You find yourself amening Scripture and not easily or often convicted by it. You often find or more often find yourself amening Scripture and most often, maybe, maybe I'll throw a third. I just thought of a third. I'm going to let the Spirit talk to me about the third while I give you the first two. Make sure it's confirmed, okay? You find yourself amening Scripture more than you allow yourself to be convicted by it. Notice what James one twenty two says. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not just hearers who what? Deceive themselves. So when we often hear the word and it does nothing, it doesn't convict us. I would say, I'm, I'm not saying we're always then self-deceived. But if we rarely experience conviction in our lives, we're in danger of being self-deceived. All of us in this room need constant realignment towards the spirit of God. The second thing is we have excused your sin. You've, you've found a way to excuse your sin. And you, you know it's not quite right, but you found an excuse for it. Notice this, Titus chapter 3, verse 3 says this, we're two, We were two once foolish, disobedient, and uh, this word, we were deceived. We were deceived. What happens when we were deceived? We were enslaved to the various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. We were deceived. And so when we were deceived, we gave into our our sinful desires and we excused them. We're deceived. I think, I'll I'll add my third. I think it was from the, the Spirit. If often we read scripture and instead of submitting to it, we think of how others should submit to it, we're self-deceived. 
When we read scripture that's trying to cut to our hearts and we're thinking about how someone else needs to change their lives towards this, we've blocked out the spirit of God from our life, from our heart, from, our, from changing us, what it's meant to do. And we're saying, man, I wish this person could do this. I wish this person could do this. And while we're never con- convicted, we never submit ourselves, rarely submit ourselves under this conviction of the spirit. That's for us. Our quiet time is not for anyone else. That's a self-deception technique. It's, it's how the enemy uses us for evil because we're not submitting underneath the word. But like a doctor, Jesus gives us the treatment for our disease. I love this. So he says, okay, here's your symptoms. You're lukewarm. The sickness is this. You're self-deceived. You think you don't need me. And he gives us a cure for our disease, repentance. He says this, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and shame your nakedness and not be revealed, and eyes soft to apply to your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So there's this phrase, I think, that easily trips us up. It tripped me up this week when I was studying. It says, you should buy from me these things. And I immediately thought, what do I have that you don't have? What do I have that you want? My study took me to Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. What I think Jesus is referring to here, and he says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is good news. Before this passage, before I looked at this passage, I was thinking, okay, what do I, like, what do you need? Uh, like righteousness, self-righteousness, good deeds, alms, offerings, service. But he invites those who have nothing to come and surrender themselves for what he has. And I think although this Old, this old Testament passage uh, this, this verb to buy is more, more likely chosen because of Laodicea in church, already assesses itself in these commercial items. I'm rich, I've become wealthy, I don't need a thing. I think Christ's frank evaluation of their true and poor condition is expressed here. Christ's advice to this boastful church that sees itself as wealthy, blind to its true poverty, is ironic because they're commanded to purchase something that they cannot actually afford. They can't actually afford what Christ is demanding of them. And neither can we. We we can't buy our own righteousness. The white clothes that cover our filthy garments of sin, we can't buy. We We can't afford those. Notice what Peter teaches in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. He says this, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which perishes through fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation 
of Jesus Christ. Salvation is a gift of God through faith, not of works. It's with our faith we buy the unpurchasable. Through our faith in Jesus. And this is the incredible thing. So when we line this passage up with all other passages in in Scripture... We come to him broken and needy. When he says and gives us the invitation, all who are weary, heavy laden, broken, come to me. And so this this is the essence of salvation. Trusting Christ that when we come to him with nothing, with nothing, although he's saying you have to have this, and I will give it to you. Like everything inside of us wants to build up enough credit to come to him and say, well, okay, so I'm gonna, I need your salvation, obviously. I need your salvation, but I'm a a good person. I'm a good person. And if you save me, I'll do a lot of good things. I'll work for the kingdom. I'll serve in kids ministry. I'll, uh, I'll register for July 4th. And like we convince ourselves, we might not say these words out loud, but we convince ourselves that he's actually getting a good deal because now we'll do all of these things. But what we do is, is what he's saying here is, hey, this is the essence of salvation. I have everything you need. I'm the only one who has what you need. And you have nothing that I will ever need. You can't buy this, but I'm demanding that you buy this. So you come to me needy, broken, and admit that you can't afford it, and I'll give it to you. That's salvation. Admitting that I need Christ's righteousness, I can't do anything to buy it. Perfect. Then you're the one that I give it to. The ones who come in and say, no, I can, I'll meet you halvesies. I'll take you and my good works. I'll take you and my confession. I'll take you and my offerings. I'll take you and my service. I'll take you and the way that I live my life. That's the one who Jesus says, you're self-deceived. I want and need nothing from you. You have no righteousness of your own. None. None. Those are Jesus' words. Your righteousness, he says, are like filthy rags. Like when you bring me your best, I have to dispose of those. And so he says, come to me needy and broken. And then listen to this. I love this passage. He says this, uh, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and I'll dine with him and he with me. And so in this passage, we get this beautiful picture of what repentance looks like. 
I think oftentimes I've used this in this way. I think it applies for an evangelistic uh, passage where Christ says, hey, listen, I'm at the door. Open it for me. I'll come in. We'll have a relationship. I think that works. But also, this is specifically to the church of Laodicea who's lukewarm, who's far from God, who's self-deceived, all of the things. And he's saying, just come back to me. It's an invitation of repentance. I think sometimes... Uh, if you've been like me, you've avoided the doctor because you know that there's going to be a, a, uh, a treatment plan that's going to inconvenience you or hurt, right? I have foolishly limped around for years on a knee, right? you know, because it's like, I know I'm going to need surgery. I don't want surgery. And so we think, we think we're better off by just avoiding it, right? And so I think some of us, those who are self-deceived and don't know Christ, think that, that when we hear the knock at our door of the hearts in us, and we think we open the door, we think we're going to be met with a lightning bolt. We think we're going to be met with just this massive burden of shame and guilt and judgment. It's not what Jesus says. He says, when you open the door, I meet you at the table. This is, this is good news. That means for every one of us in the room, who the Spirit's convicting at the moment or any moment, when we turn to open the door for Christ to speak into our lives, he meets us with love and forgiveness and mercy and compassion. It's who he is, loving kindness, long-suffering. It's who he declares himself to be. So can I urge you? Can I urge you even now Turn and open the door. Each letter ends with this promise. So this one ends with this one of eternal value. And he says, he who overcomes, I'll grant him to sit on the throne with me. On my throne as I overcome and sat on my, the, the uh, father of his throne. And then each each letter ends with this same statement. Promise, though not insignificant, eternal, what scripture would say, the eternal weight of glory he gives to us. And then he, he ends every letter with this hope, really. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. I think each week he says, he says this in some way. If you can hear me, obey me. If you hear my warning, please listen. If, if you hear me, respond to me. If you hear me, don't walk out the same way that you came in. If you hear me, Come to me. 
There's a fascinating story I read this week. Um, it's about a janitor that was cleaning a laboratory at a university in Troy, New York. Uh, and the court decided that he was guilty of damaging and destroying at least $1 million of scientific research after shutting off the storage freezer while trying to turn off a constant beeping noise. Many of you might be like, well, that, the janitor probably didn't know. Poor guy. The Resonator Polytechnic Institute filed lawsuit against the cleaning service um, when the cleaner shut off the circuit breaker uh, two years ago on September 17th. The freezer was storing cell cultures, sampling other research uh, elements at minus 112 degrees. And the temperature reportedly rose to minus 25, and after the freezer was turned off, damaging or destroying all of its contents. There was a sign on the freezer door that said, the freezer is beeping and it's under repair. Do not unplug it. No cleaning is required in this area. You can press the alarm test button for five seconds if you would like to mute the sound. But unfortunately, he didn't heed the warning. And a million dollars in 25 years of research destroyed. The beeping was just annoying. It was kind of an inconvenience. It was a bother. He would just rather do his thing and not listen. I believe today that the Spirit is gifting some of us with a beep in our heart. And you get to decide, do I turn it off? And see what happens? Or do I look and pay attention to the one who died for me saying, be careful. Turn to me. Come to me. The beeping noise is not a noise of judgment. It's a gift of an invitation to the table. Today, as we close in reflection and response, I, I would challenge you. Sometimes there's just a small act of obedience that Christ is asking for that literally is, is what opens the door. I, I don't know what that is for you. I'm not going to presume that it's the same for everyone in here I would say a very good step of obedience would be requesting prayer with someone else. Very trusted and confidential team of people who are waiting at the back of those curtains to take you into that next room and just pray with you. 
I would say most often that's a very good step of obedience. It pushes your heart and your feet and your mind and your mouth towards this goal of saying, I just need you to pray for me. You don't have to go into your story. You don't have to go into the details. Would you just say, hey, listen, I, I, I want to take steps towards a closer relationship to God. I know, I'm no, I know I'm not where I need to be. Would you pray for me? Just that simple act of obedience might be the opening of the door. It may be today when we stand and sing, it may be for you, you stay seated or get down on your knees and you pray and you say, God, I don't want to go anywhere until you do something. I will not turn off the beep. I, I won't silence the alarm. I won't walk away from your warning. I will not blow past you asking me and begging me to slow down. I would urge you really, really carefully as we reflect and respond, before you turn your gaze to someone else who may be far from God, I would ask you even to say, God, is this me? Is this me? Maybe when God confirms, man, you are right where you need to be. I would then turn your gaze towards those close in your circle that God has brought into your life. And then I would start forming my prayers for them to say, God, would you help them? They're self-deceived. They don't know it. Would you speak to them and bring them out? Would you do whatever it takes to bring them to you? You know, when the, when the creator of the universe, the amen, drops everything and he says, stop, warning, don't go any further, don't go any faster, turn around, whoa, 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 and she calls all of us in the room, all of us in the room to respond in some way. Let's pray together. Lord, we don't deserve what you give us. Mercy and love and compassion and forgiveness and grace and long-suffering. But you offer it to us. And among those things, we, we don't deserve for you to come down to us and speak to us and warn us and say, whoa, 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 don't go that way. But you do. You constantly pursue us. So I pray, Lord, that we would listen and heed your warning. That we would not silence you. Lord, I pray that we would take a step towards the door today and then open it and experience the goodness of who you are and what you have promised. I'm gonna ask that you just continue to reflect, maybe even pray a prayer like the psalmist did. God, would you search my heart? Would you show me the things in it? As Jesse leads us towards reflection, in response, I, I would ask, whatever the Spirit is asking you to do, I would ask you to do.
Don't silence. Don't silence him. Listen and obey.